This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right. Well, how far have you been enjoying GYC so far? Amen. Praise God. Well, this seminar is uh, engaging the age, um, reviving the public evangelistic campaign. And uh, this is not just for those that want to actually preach an evangelistic campaign, even though it is very much for those, but also for those of you that would like to be involved in planning or organizing an evangelistic series. So thank you for coming, and um, I look forward to what God has in store for us. Uh, Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and I invite you to bow your heads together with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us together here. Thank you so much for GYC and for the blessings we have received already. And Lord, we look forward to many more blessings today. And so we pray that you'll be with us in this session, in this workshop, as we look at the evangelistic series and how that we can prepare, organize, and preach an evangelistic series. Lord, we want you to be our teacher this morning. We want your spirit to instruct us and guide us and lead us. And so I ask that you will be with us and that you'll speak to us in a very personal way. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's start with a little bit of an uh, overview here as to what we will be looking at. And I think you will, should be able to see this on the screen in just a moment. We're not connected yet. So can we connect to the PowerPoint? Someone can help us with that. Do we have some technical people here? I see, yeah, there we go. All right. So these are the, these are the areas that we want to cover together. Uh, we have four sessions together. Uh, in our first session today, we're going to look at public evangelism and its relevance today. Public evangelism and its relevance today. Uh, this morning in our second session, we're going to look at preparing to share uh, all that is involved in the organizing and preparing of an evangelistic series. And then this afternoon in our third session, we will look at the message and its presentation. So the actual preaching of an evangelistic series and how to build up our messages. And then in our last session this afternoon, we're going to look at the topic of keeping the interest. In other words, the follow-up of an evangelistic series. So these are the the four areas that we would like to look at uh, through this series. So we start with public evangelism and uh, the question if it is still relevant for us today. Many believe that public evangelism is something that is outdated, something that belongs to the past, something that worked at one time but no longer works today. And uh, we want to ask if that's true. We want to see from a biblical perspective if it is truly outdated. Because if that is so, then, you know, we might as well just go to another workshop this morning. And maybe, you know, per- personal evangelism or health evangelism. These are very, very important things. But is there still a place also for public evangelism? That's the, that's the first question we want to start with. Is there a place for public evangelism or is it outdated? Well, I think the relevance of public evangelism very much lies in the relevance of Scripture. Because in the Scripture, we find the great commission of Jesus to the disciples that they were to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, to teach all nations. 
And so if they were called to teach all nations, if they were called to preach all nations, and it was relevant to preach in a public uh, setting in the first century, then the question is, is it still relevant today? Well, we look at our world today, and one of the main arguments that is used against public evangelism, that it is outdated, is the fact that we are living in very different times. Have you heard that? Yeah, you heard that? Like, you know, the world is not the same as it used to be, and so we need to have new methods of evangelism. And of course, we should always be uh, on the lookout for new ways to reach people and new ways to engage the age. But the question is, if public evangelism was relevant in the first century, when we see in the Great Commission of Jesus when he sent out the disciples, has it then become unrelevant today? Is the world so different today than it was in the days of the apostles, the early church? Are you following? So is the difference so great between the world at that time and this time that public evangelism worked then but no longer works today? Well, that's what we want to find out. Now, and, and, and to do that, we're going to take a little bit of a journey here, and we're going to go back to the first century. And I just want to look at a couple of characteristics of the world and what it was like in the first century. And I believe it's, it's going to be very interesting, because what we're going to see is that the world in the first century was, is very, was very, very similar to the world that we experience today. And you might say, well, how can that be? You know, technology has increased and, and aren't we living in a very, very different world? Many things are indeed different, but there are some fundamental pillars that make up society that are absolutely the same. And this is very interesting to see because if public evangelism was relevant in the first century and these same pillars still exist today, then public evangelism is still relevant today. Do you follow? Amen? All right, let's look at this. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23, uh, we read the following. For Jews requested a sign and Greeks seek after what? What does it say? Wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks what? Foolishness. Now, and don't be afraid to answer. We're, we're not many people in the seminar, so be, please just come as close as you can and just answer because I feel so distant here on the stage. I'm just here because of the cameras. But let's make this um, a, uh, a setting where we can uh, interact with each other. So here we have um, a description of the Greeks, and the Greeks are searching after wisdom. And for the Greeks, the message of Christ is foolish. Now, what we need to understand is the world of the early disciples, the world of the apostles, was a Greek world. Now, um, you will know that the Roman Empire was the ruling empire at that time, but nonetheless, Greek culture had emerged as the primary adopted culture in the Roman Empire. So what you would see is that the Roman emperor, em, emperors, they determined to unify their empire, to unify the Roman Empire by diffusing the Greek culture to all the nations. So you had Greek philosophy, you had Greek religion, you had Greek games like the Olympic Games, which originate from Greece. You had the educational system. It was called Hellenization. And so this took, this took place... 
And even though the Romans ruled in the days of Paul and the early apostolic church of the first century, the Greek culture was adopted by the Romans. And so they used this to unify the empire, okay? So the apostles went forward preaching, publicly preaching in a Greek setting, okay? In a Greek world. Now, there are a couple of things that um, characterize the Greek culture. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, we have a little bit of an insight into the Greek culture. It says the following, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's interesting. So this is a little bit of the world of the Greeks here. They spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Do you know any modern Greeks today? Have you ever been in Sabbath school with some Greeks? They're always telling something. They always hear, want to hear something new. This was the world of the Greeks. There was a promotion of knowledge. A promotion of knowledge. It was a, they always wanted to learn, to explore. Knowledge and wisdom were esteemed extremely high. Now, the Greeks developed the educational system that many other cultures adopted even today. When you look at the universities, the universities are built upon a, a, a Greek foundation, actually, a Greek, um, um, the Greek culture when you go back and you uh, examine that. Very interesting. Most universities of, of today can trace their organization and philosophy to Greek uh, origin. But not only did the Greeks promote knowledge, the Greeks also promoted pleasure. Um, when you look at the, uh, the Greeks, they loved bread and games. The, 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 you look at the, um, uh, the big um, sports events that they would organize. They built huge arenas to watch gladiators fight. They watched runners of various sports. Uh, as I said, the Olympic Games, you can trace that back to Greece as well. Now, not only were they promote, promoting knowledge and not only were they promoting pleasure, but they also promoted a wide variety of different religious persuasions. Uh, when you look at the, the gods um, that the Greeks worshipped, it was just a, ah, oh, there were so many of them. And um, when you go uh, to the story in the book of Acts and Paul, he comes to the city of Athens, he just you know, he just looks around and he sees all these idols. And then as he ministers to the people there, he catches their attention to that one idol with the inscription to the unknown God. We're going to come to that story in just a bit. But in Greece, you would find this wide spectrum of spiritual persuasions. Now, looking at those three characteristics, just these three for a moment, the promotion of knowledge in Greek culture, Secondly, the promotion of pleasure, bread and games, Olymp you know, the, 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 the games, the sports, the gladiators. And then thirdly, the promotion of a wide variety of spiritual uh, perspec uh, perspectives, or in other words, religions. Um, these three things we also see in our world today. Now take notice of um, a couple of verses here that indicate um, what, what the world is like uh, in the end of time. And so these verses are particularly in the framework of the end of time. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, it talks about knowledge shall increase in the time of the end. 
knowledge shall increase. Second Timothy chapter three, verses one to four, people will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God in these last days. So there we have it, the knowledge will increase, Secondly, people will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. There's a, there's a searching after knowledge. There's a searching after pleasure. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, the Bible, uh, uh, we read there that in the latter times, many will be deceived by seducing spirits. So here, just in these three verses, what we see, there's a promotion of knowledge. There's a promotion of pleasure. And there's a promotion of many spiritual persuasions, false spiritual persuasions, deceiving, seducing spirits. And so we look at the world in the first century and we compare it with the world today and there are some things that are fundamentally the same. And so our question in this first session is, is public evangelism still relevant today? Well, if it was relevant in the first century with the world that the apostles faced, and we compare that world with our world, and we see that fundamentally there are still things that are the same, then public evangelism becomes relevant for us as well. Amen? And uh, I want to look here at Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, and, and Jeffrey, for those of you that were in the seminar with Jeffrey yesterday, he, he covered a little bit of this also. In Acts chapter 17, we read about how Paul engages the, um, the people there in the city of Athens. And take notice what it says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 19. Acts chapter 17 and verse 19. And they took him, talking about Paul, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. And so here Paul has the opportunity to share with the people in the city of Athens. And it says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now, I want to look at something important here. When Paul is addressing the people in the city of Athens, he is looking to a point in which he can connect with them. And he's looking at, at something where he can catch their attention. And so he sees all these idols, but he sees one idol with the inscription to the unknown God. And he takes that inscription, and from there he starts revealing to them an amazing picture of who God really is. He paints this picture, as it were, with words of what this God is like. This God that is unknown to them, he makes him known. And so what we, what we want to look at here this morning as we look at the relevance of public evangelism, first we have established that it was relevant in the first century with the world that the apostles faced. The world that the apostles faced was a world where they promoted knowledge, where they promoted pleasure, where they promoted a wide variety of spirituality. And those are the very pillars that we find in our society today. So public evangelism is still relevant for us. And then we look at not only what the world is like, but what actually people are like. 
The people in Athens, even though they had knowledge, they had pleasure, and they had all this spirituality, still they were searching for something more, right? I mean, the very fact that they raised up this altar with the inscription to the unknown God reveals that there was something missing in their experience. There was something that was not there. There was something that was unknown. And so Paul, in a marvelous way, he takes that inscription, he takes that inscription from that altar and, 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 and relates it to the people and makes the God that they were searching for known. Because deep inside of every single human being, there is a longing for God. Now that longing can be covered up by knowledge, that longing can be covered up by pleasure of the world. This, that longing can be covered up by, by a, a, a wide variety of false spirituality. But deep inside, God has made a, a, a place that only he can fill. We are created with a special place that only God can fill. That's quite amazing to think about. And you know what? This changes the way that we do evangelism. Because when we understand that God has a place in every human being that only he can fill, then we will want to reach out to the person and call forth that which is in them longing for something more. And that's exactly what Paul does here when he speaks in Athens, uh, as we read about in Acts chapter 17. Now there's another scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. I want you to take notice of this verse as it, um, as it, as it comes into the same thought that we're developing here as to um, how God has uh, a place in every heart um, that only he can fill. Look at this, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. He, talking about God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity where? What does it say? What does it say? In their hearts, exactly. He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So God has placed eternity in the hearts of mankind. A longing for himself. A longing that only he can fill. That changes your perspective, perspective on evangelism. If you know that God has in every single heart, there is that longing. Now it's covered up. Yes, it's covered up by pleasure. It's covered up by, by, by knowledge. It's covered up by, by the things of this world and by the, even spirituality in this world. And yet, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word, we can come below those layers and we can fill that spot with God himself, amen? With the message of Jesus Christ. Now, as, um, as Paul preached in the city of Athens, he put the creator on display and he, he reveals the beauty, of the beauty of the character of God uh, in that passage. Now, we're not going to go so much into that uh, right now, but the interesting thing is that what you see there in Acts chapter 17 is really a public evangelistic meeting where the city has come together to hear Paul, and so he is publicly presenting the message. He's publicly presenting Christ to the people. Now, 
I want to make a little bit of a transition here, and I want to share a little bit um, about my uh, personal experience with public evangelism. Because what we're looking at here this morning, we've already seen that, yes, it, it, if it was relevant in the first century, and the world is similar today, um, at least we have pillars of uh, that are similar, that make up society, then public evangelism is also relevant today because it was, a very, it was the very commission of God. But I want to go a little bit further here and look at um, why has evangelism many times not worked and what can we learn from our mistakes? And in this, I'm going to share a little bit um, of, my, of a personal ex- some personal experiences as well. Um, you know, in John chapter 21, there's this story. Very interesting story. Uh, The disciples, they are out fishing. And they are fishing all night long. All night long they are fishing. And and they catch absolutely nothing. And then in the morning, as they are about to, to, to come to shore, Jesus is walking there on the beach. He's walking there on the shore. Now, this was after the uh, resurrection of Jesus. This was like a a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And they didn't recognize him at once. And Jesus says to them, throw out the net again. Now, they had been fishing all night long, and they had caught absolutely nothing. And yet Jesus commands them, to throw out the net once more. And then he says something interesting there in that passage of John chapter 21. He says, throw it out on the right side of the boat. I don't know the exact meaning of that, but I'm just thinking to myself, there's a right way to do evangelism and there's a wrong way to do evangelism. Public evangelism, we need to learn how to cast out the net in the right way in order to draw people in, in order to win souls for Christ. And they do that in the story. You can read it there in John chapter 21. They cast out the net and they have so much fish that the boat starts to sink. Incredible story. Now you and I, we need to, throw, we need to cast out the net as well. And I don't know how many of you have experience with public evangelism. How many of you have, have, have been involved in a public evangelistic series before? Okay. How many of you have been involved in a public evangelistic series that did not draw many people or actually was, yeah, I wouldn't call it a failure because we never know what really a failure is because God can work in ways that we don't even see. But, you know, not many people came. You didn't catch much fish. How many of you have had that experience? Okay, interesting. I have, uh, absolutely. Um, You know, In public evangelism, many times we throw out the net, but we don't catch anything. Just like the disciples, they're they're fishing the whole night, but they didn't catch anything. We need to learn how to throw out the net in the right way, on the right side, as, as Jesus commanded the disciples in John chapter 21. Now, when I... Um, first, actually the first evangelistic series uh, that I heard in my life was about 12 years ago, and it was a series that, um, uh, actually it must be a little bit longer, a little bit more than 12 years ago. How many of you remember uh, Net 98? Okay, some of you. Uh, with, uh, with Dwight Nelson at that time. Um, I remember that was 
the, I believe, if I remember correctly, the first, uh, the first public evangelistic series that I watched on video, um, and I'd never seen anything like that before, um, how he was going through the different teachings of scripture, and Christ was very central in all those teachings, and I remember being very uh, moved and, 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 and very um, impressed uh, by the message, and it really spoke to me at that time, and later on, when I went to a Bible school and learned more about public evangelism, I, was, I found out that many people were doing this all over the world. I first had the idea, oh, there's just, you know, um, one or two or three couple of people doing this, but no, there were actually people all over the world uh, conducting uh, these, this type of evangelism, reaching out through a series of, of, of lectures, a series of presentations uh, focused on the biblical truths of Adventism centered in Christ Jesus. I thought it was absolutely amazing, very beautiful. Now, um, when I did my first public evangelistic series, you know, it was... It was like the experience of the disciples when they went fishing during the night and they caught nothing. Uh, and the reason was because there was, a, the, there was a lot of things that I did not know at that time that I know now. And that's why I think it's important that I share this with you because I could share some, you know, some, some nice stories about public evangelism and some beautiful baptisms and sometimes you read the reports and everything seems so glorious. So many were baptized, so many joined the church. But you know, the reality is that there are a lot of stories about public evangelism that are very different. It's like, you remember uh, David Ashwick was talking about the other side of the book of Acts? Well, there's an other side to evangelism where there, it is difficult, it's a very difficult work. And it doesn't always bring the results that we hope. And many times it also has to do with the way that we do it. We have to learn how to cast out that gnat in the right way. Now, my first public evangelistic series was actually in the year 2003. And it was right after I got married. My wife and I, we got married. And um, actually, instead of, instead of going on a honeymoon, we, we did an evangelistic series. And uh, we went to this city in the on the west coast of Norway, and we had great, great expectations. And so we thought, you know, we shared out these flyers in the city. We uh, we really. I was thinking to myself when we, when we looked at the uh, at the hall, uh, we had rented this this small room in a uh, in a hotel. And uh, it was probably about the size of this stage, actually, not much bigger than that. And when I saw it, because we had, we had, or, we had um, booked it uh, by telephone, when I actually saw the place, I thought to myself, this is way too small. I thought, you know, we need a bigger place. More people are going to come. We had, this, we had these high expectations. And so we shared out these uh, many flyers in the city. And... Um, the first night comes, and we had even been discussing, like, what are we going to do if, uh, if, more, if more people come, you know? If they just don't fit, then, you know, maybe we'll have to do two sessions, or we're, like, figuring this out, thinking like this. Now, the first night comes, and only five people came. Now, I thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to be discouraged because, you know, um, if, we had hoped for more, but let, let's just go forward preaching the word. And so we went forward that night preaching the word. And I thought the second night, hopefully they will invite some friends and we'll have some more people to share with the second night. And so the second night comes, and guess how many people came? <laughs> well, 
I was there. My wife was there because she was going to translate me to Norwegian. I didn't speak Norwegian at that time. And we had one other person. <laughs> and that was an Adventist that was supposed to do the introduction. And so we were, <laughs> we were three people on our second night. And I thought to myself, this is an absolute disaster. An absolute disaster. Now, uh, I, was, I got my computer and I, and I was putting it together. I thought I was just going to go home. And uh, that was the end of my career as a public evangelist. And as I'm like packing my things together, this one guy, he says, yeah, but I want, I want to hear this. I want, I, want, I want to hear this. I came for this. And so he, uh, he sits down and I, I preach my, my, my second night of my first evangelistic series to one person. To one person. And uh, I went home that evening and I was, I was discouraged and uh, I remember it was a rainy evening. It was just pouring down with rain. We had rented this tiny little cabin where we were staying because it was, it was far from where we lived. And I was sitting on the edge of the bed there. I was just thinking to myself, what am I going to do with my life from now on? Public evangelism sounded good. It didn't work. Let's go to the next phase of life. And uh, I remember <laughs> my dear wife, she, she encouraged me and she said, you know, you know, you'll look back on this one day with a smile and God will lead. Don't give up. Continue going on. And um, praise God, that's what we did. But in the course of doing public evangelism, we were learning some methods, some divine, <laughs> divinely inspired methods in order for evangelism to work. You see, there were many, many mistakes that we made with that first evangelistic series. First of all, we didn't even have a team to work with. It was an area where there were no, not many Adventists at all. And so it was basically just my wife and I. I mean, we, and we're going to look at more at the practical side of this in our second session, how important it is to have a church or a team that you work together with. And, 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 we, and that, that first evangelistic series, you know, we had a flyer that we, that we made and we thought it was great at that time. You look, we look at back at it today and it's just, it's a disaster. You know, you, you wonder why you did certain things certain ways. And yet God guides, even in such instances, God guides. And we learn many times by stumbling and falling and getting back up. That's how we learn. That's how a child learns to walk. And this is also many times how we learn to do evangelism, even though it is important for us to take the inspired counsel because it will help us in learning how to reach out to people. And so we started after that evangelistic series, and I won't, I won't call it an absolute disaster. There were definitely some people coming each night. We had a few people, and, and you never know the results uh, of that until, until we, we reach heaven, right? That's when we really know the full results of, of our work here on earth. But um, there were things that we needed to learn, and so I remember picking up the book Evangelism. Now, how many of you have read from the book Evangelism? Okay, just a couple of you. I'll be sharing quite a number of, uh, actually a number of um, quotes throughout this series from that book, and it's just absolutely amazing. It is a, a wonderful book full of rich, I mean, just treasures of, 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 of counsel when it comes to public evangelism. And I, I began reading that, and I was just seeing what, 
what was not in place with that first evangelistic series that I held and what I needed to change and where I needed to adapt the way in which we did. We were like learning to cast out the net in the right way, like the disciples. Now in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and 20, there we have the great commission. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, spoke to the disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, when Jesus commands them to go forth and preach the gospel, you know, and we take this, these words of Jesus, into our experience, into our lives, and we go out and we share the gospel, you know, we, there, there must be something more than merely the command itself. There's one thing to know that it is right to preach the word and to share Christ, but there must be a motivation that goes beyond a command to do something. And, you know, and I remember, in, and, and why I share this is because in my early experience of doing public evangelism, that first series that I did in 2003, it was very much because I knew it was the right thing to do, okay? It's the right thing to do, and so I'm going to do it. But my friends, that is not enough in evangelism. It's not enough in public evangelism to do it because it's the right thing to do. There must be a deeper experience that can really empower us as we go forth preaching the gospel. I want you to take notice of this verse in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44 because I think that here there is a, a, a motivation that, is, that goes deeper. It says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 44, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a what? A treasure. A treasure. And so when you find that treasure, when, when, when the man finds the treasure in the field, he sells everything that he has and buys that field. Because in his estimation, that treasure is worth more than anything else. More than anything else. Now, when Christ becomes your treasure and becomes worth more than anything else, you will be willing to give up everything for Christ because you will esteem him as the greatest value in your life. You see, it's one thing for you to obey a command to preach the gospel. It's another thing for you with great joy to share a treasure that you have found. Do you see the difference there, yes or no? You see the difference? There's a huge difference. Yes, Jesus should be our Lord, definitely. He is our Lord. And yet there's a, another dimension to it. He is also our treasure. We will want to obey him because we have great joy in doing what he has commanded us to do. We will go forward with a passion because we have found something that we want to share with the world. It's a treasure. It's a treasure. There's another parable that comes right after that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 and 46. 
It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price and went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the pearl is found and everything else is given up in order to purchase that one pearl. Now, of course, Christ is that pearl. Christ is that treasure. Christ should become the one object that we long for, the one person that we long for more than anything else. And then public evangelism, evangelism as a whole, would take on a whole new perspective because we're not just doing it because God commanded us, because Christ commanded us to do it, but we're doing it because we want to. We have found something that is so precious that we cannot keep it to ourselves, but we want to put it on display for everyone else to experience. Amen? And I, just, I know in my, in my experience of public evangelism, it started with more of a, this has to be done, this is something I must do, Christ is my Lord, but then Christ became more than my Lord, he also become, became my treasure. And I remember when, when, when that really took a hold of me, it was like finding this, this treasure in scripture, and it's not that I had to share it, it was that I wanted to share it more than anything else. And uh, we need to pray in our experience um, when we do public evangelism, when we do personal evangelism, whatever type of evangelism we basically do, that it becomes a displaying of a treasure that we have found. And the question is, have you found that treasure? Have you found that treasure? Have you found Christ to be more valuable than anything else in your life? And are you willing to give up everything because there's a price to be paid here? Who's willing to give up everything to obtain that great price? You know, you look at the, the Ten Commandments in Scripture, and sometimes we look at it like, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and we look at it from a, a perspective of, 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 you know, limitation. We are being limited from this, we're being living, limited from this, and limited from this. We need to look again at, the, at a fresh look at the Ten Commandments, my friends. They are ten promises, and the first commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you know that that's a promise? You don't need anything else. I will be everything to you. That's what God says. You don't need any other gods. I will fulfill your deepest need, the deepest longing of your soul. I will be there. I will fulfill it. That's the promise of God. You look at the last commandment. What's the last commandment? Thou shalt not covet, right? Thou shalt not covet. That's the last commandment. You know what? That is a promise. Because when God becomes everything to you, you, don't, you, won't, you won't want any other life. You won't, covet, you, don't, you won't covet any other life because God has fulfilled every need that you have. Amen? And so I, I think this is, this is something that has changed for me uh, my perspective in evangelism and that's why I'm sharing it with you this morning uh, in evangelism it's about believing the promise of God in evangelism it's about finding a treasure and displaying that treasure and being willing to give up everything because you have found something of so much value that it's worth giving up everything the treasure now, in Acts chapter 19, there's an interesting instance. 
Because as we find this treasure and put him on display, this is a very personal experience. I mean, I cannot display a treasure that I have not found. And I cannot display the treasure that you have found. I need to find it myself. I need to have a personal experience with Christ before I can share with others around me. You know, I can't, I can't have an experience based on someone else's experience. And so it is in public evangelism, we must have a personal experience with Christ before we can publicly share that experience. Now, there's this interesting um, story in Acts chapter 19 that illustrates uh, how this works. Take notice of this. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. It says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise exorcism exercise you by the Jesus, listen very carefully, whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Scepha, a Jewish, uh, a Jewish chief priest who did so, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded." Isn't that interesting? Paul had been preaching the gospel. Paul was the, one of the great uh, evangelists, probably the second greatest evangelist that ever lived after Jesus himself. A public evangelist, also, of course, involved in personal work, but also publicly proclaiming the message in many different, many different towns and countries. And here he is, on one occasion, preaching the message, healing the sick, and there are others that are looking on to them and say, ah, that's what I want to do. Ah, that's what I want to do. I want to also be like Paul, and so they see that these people are filled with, with, with demons, and so they approach them, and they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and they try to cast out those demons, but what happens? <laughs> those demons overpower them. Why? Because it was not their personal experience. They were trying to do a work based on the experience of Paul. We cannot do our work based upon the experience of someone else. In evangelism, it must become something personal, deeply personal. We must find a treasure for ourselves. And when we've found that treasure in his word, in God's word, you know, God's word is like the field in the parable. Christ is the treasure in the field. It's like Christ is hidden in scripture. He's, he's there but he needs to be discovered. You need to discover him in the Old Testament. You need to discover him in all the pages from Genesis to Revelation. We're going and we're searching the field, we're searching the scriptures, and then we find the treasure. We find Christ. We find him over and over again. We start seeing him everywhere. And then, what's the next, what's the next that we do? We give up everything else to obtain that treasure, and then we put that treasure on display. That's public evangelism. That's public evangelism. Putting Christ on display, sharing the treasure. But we must personally find him. We cannot share a treasure that someone else has found. According to this text, very clearly, we need a personal experience to put him on display. 
Now in John chapter four, there's this story where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. And um, uh, he starts ministering to her. And this personal conversation leads into a public evangelistic series. And I want you to catch this. I want you to take notice of this. Because there was something that this woman found. There was a treasure that she found in her discussion with Jesus. And she went back to her city and she shares this treasure. And these people also want this treasure. And they come to Jesus. And then you have this, this, this mini uh, evangelistic series. I want you to take notice of this. We're not going to go through all of the discussion. But when the woman is hearing Jesus speak at the, at the well, she realizes there's something special about this man. And she didn't know what it was. But she was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And it says the following in John 4, verse 25. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So the woman is looking forward to a future day that Jesus Christ is going to come, that the Messiah is going to come and reveal himself and tell them all things. The very fact was that Jesus was right there by her side. And so Jesus' response is, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Now, take notice what happens. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So the woman finds a treasure. The woman receives a revelation that she's right there with the Messiah. She takes that treasure and she puts it on display for the town. She shares that treasure. The people come and they receive it directly from Christ, the word. And it's like two days, Jesus is there preaching to the, to, to the people, to the multitudes in that city in Samaria. We have here a a short evangelistic series preached by Christ himself. Why? Because this woman found the treasure and was willing to give up everything and to share that treasure, to put that treasure on display. Now, in order to find that, in order to obtain that treasure, the scriptures make it very clear in the parable that we must give up how much? Everything. Everything must give up everything. You know, public evangelism is not an easy thing. And it doesn't just happen. It is a, it is a work that needs a deep, deep spiritual preparation. And it is so that in public evangelism, in order for us to have great joy in the harvest of souls, there is first something that precedes that, and that is the the work of sowing the seed, the work of preparation, and many times that involves even tears. Because there is, it is not an easy thing. As a matter of fact, I want you to take notice of John chapter 21. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, and some of these last, some of the very, 
the last discussions that he had with his disciples, uh, we looked at, um, I referred to John chapter 21 earlier on in this session. It was where uh, Jesus said to them that they should cast out the net again. But I want you to take notice, when they come to the shore and they have all the fish that they've caught and they sit down with Jesus and they eat together, listen to this conversation. John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him, the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Interesting. Three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, Peter asks, yes. And then what is it? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. In other words, reach out to others. If you love me, reach out to others. Display the treasure that you have found. This is the motivation, the heartbeat of evangelism. We love Christ. He, beca- he, he is the, very, the great treasure that we have found. And we're willing, or we, we want to. There's a great joy in sharing that with others, but it also involves a sacrifice. Take notice what, what, what it says next in this same passage. Most assuredly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to, um, to Peter. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Now, what is this referring to? The very next verse tells us. Verse 19. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter was crucified upside down. He was crucified, but he, wanted, he didn't want to be crucified in the normal way because he didn't feel worthy of that. And so he asked if they could crucify him upside down. This was the death that he died for making Christ his treasure. This was the death that he died because of feeding the sheep, feeding the people of God with the word of God. You see, public evangelism involves a sacrifice. Sometimes we think that we can just, you know, share out some flyers and just rent a hall and then do a public evangelistic series without really the hard work of personally reaching out to souls and preparing the ground for such a work. And so there's this... um, there's this psalm in the, psalm in the Bible that, that describes this so very well. I want you to take notice of this. Psalm chapter 126. And we're going to close with this. Um, in our first, we're going to close our first session with this passage here. Psalm chapter 126, verse 1 to 6. Listen to what it says. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, this is talking about when they came back from Babylon, the captivity of Babylon. 
When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. As we are glad, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams, as the streams in the south. Now, why was this this great joy, this great amount, this, this great um, blessing of the Lord as they returned out of captivity? Take notice what it says next. Those who sow in tears shall reap in, what does it say? In joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, you have this song, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. You know that song? You know, we want a harvest of souls. We want to, with great joy. You know, if, if any of you have had a garden, how many of you have a garden? Okay, it, isn't it very nice to go out and harvest the garden? Isn't that a moment of great joy? Like, ah, here you have your, your tomatoes, or here you have your, you know, your letters and, and your onions and your potatoes, and it's great joy to bring it in. With joy, we go into the harvest. But you know what? A garden doesn't just, it just doesn't happen overnight. Or who has a garden that happens overnight? Like, isn't there a lot of work, hard work, and sweat involved in preparing the ground, right? You know, um, we go forth, as it says in this psalm, they went forth sowing in tears and reaping with joy. You know, what ha- you know what has happened today? You know why public evangelism fails today? Because we go sowing in joy and we reap in tears. We sow with joy. Ah, oh, this is an easy thing, you know. Uh, some, you hear churches that say we had an evangelistic series. The reality is that they didn't have an evangelistic series. They paid for an evangelistic series. And there's a big difference. They paid with money. I mean, okay, so many dollars for the flyers to be printed by that company over there. So many dollars for the post office to send out the flyers. So many dollars for the hall and, you know, a little bit of money for the evangelist to get him here or whatever, the Bible worker. And, okay, preach the message. And what happens? Very few people come. There's, it seems to be a failure. And so they have sowed with joy because it wasn't really an effort. It was just, you know, spending a bit of money. And so they harvest with tears. My friends, in order for public evangelism to be a success, let's turn this around. There is a, there's a hard work to be done before the harvest. It is a work of personally encountering people and preparing them. And we're going to look at this, um, we're going to look at this in our second uh, session today and also a little bit later as well. Uh, also in our last session as we look at follow-up, how important personal evangelism is, uh, we need to connect it with public evangelism. When you separate those two, and you only have a public evangelistic series, and you just spend those dollars to put it on, I can tell you, it's not going to be very successful. I mean, God can work despite of us, and some people can come and be blessed. But in general, there's a deeper work that needs to be done with reaching out to individuals and preparing them for such an event. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. But uh, in this first um, 
in this first presentation this morning, our topic has been public evangelism and its relevance today. My friends, public evangelism is very relevant today, but it's only relevant when it's done with the method of Christ, amen? It's only relevant when we do it in the way that Christ did it. I mean, it, it was relevant in the first century, and the world has not changed that much. Yes, the world has changed, but there are some pillars that are still the same today. The Greek world is similar to our world today, so it's relevant today, but it must be done as it was done then. It must be done. There was a hard work that the disciples did, the apostles did, as they went from town to town. They sowed with tears, but they reaped with joy. Amen? And we're going to find out how that we can walk in the footsteps of the apostles, how we can walk in the footsteps of the disciples as we prepare for a successful evangelistic series so that we can, in the fear of God, move forward and have great joy in harvesting souls. I want to close with this passage here, Luke chapter 14. Luke in the 14th chapter, uh, verse 28, it says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? And that's exactly what we want to do here in these sessions, in this workshop. We want to sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to finish it. We want, don't want these half towers. We want a complete tower. We want to be able to start something and finish something and have the blessing of God in it. And so that's why we're here. That's why you've chosen to come here. I hope, I believe so. And so what we're going to do is we're going to close with a word of prayer. We're going to take a break. And then we're going to go into our second session, which is planning the series, planning a series. And we're going to look at the very practical things involved with planning an evangelistic series. What needs to be in place? How do we prepare this? And how do we put all of our effort into it so that we can truly harvest souls with great joy? So let's have a, have a word of prayer before we take a break now. I invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us in our first uh, session in this workshop. Lord, we want to be those that engage the age. We want to revive the public evangelistic campaign, and we want to do it in your spirit, in your way. And so we need your wisdom. Lord, we need your insight. And we thank you for the insight that you've given to us, both in your word and in the spirit of prophecy. And so I pray that as we continue this workshop together, that we will discover how that we can complete that tower, how that we can do a successful work for you. In your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to go into our second session. And uh, our second session is entitled Preparing to Share. And um, before we get into it, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for the great experience of GYC so far. And thank you that we can engage in these sessions, in these workshops. And Lord, I pray that you will guide us and that you will speak to us as we prepare ourselves, our hearts, uh, to engage in evangelism. And as we specifically look at the public evangelistic campaign, I pray that you will give us wisdom from above. For this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, preparing to share, we're going to actually start where we left off, if we can get it up here on the screen. 
Our second title, Preparing to Share. Are we connected to... There we go. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to start with Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We, we closed with that. We're just going to... I'm just going to read it again so we have it fresh in our minds as we move forward here. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and do what? What does it say? Count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And then, it says, and then it gives a second illustration of the same principle here. It says, Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, in a very practical way, before you build a tower, there is planning that goes into that. You know, the, the drawings are made and the budget is, um, the consider, you consider the budget, how much money you have, if you're able to not only start it, but if you're able to finish it. Finish the project. If you go to war, in the same way, the army is prepared if you have enough men to actually face the enemy. And so, just like there's a preparation in these practical life experiences, so there's also a preparation when it comes to an evangelistic series. You know, we talked in our first session about the fact that um, in order to reap a harvest with joy... We must sow the seeds with tears. There's, there's a hard work to be done in order to reap with great joy. And how this is many times turned around and we sow with joy, but then we reap with tears. And uh, in the same way, um, we look at evangelism today and it's like we have many unfinished towers. Started to build something, started to do something, but we couldn't complete it. And so we have these unfinished towers and it is actually... Um, evidence of a lack of preparation. Are you with me? It's, it's evidence of a lack of preparation. And so what is involved then in that preparation? Well, we're going to look at different areas. But I want you to take notice of this uh, quotation here, taken from the book Evangelism. It says Review and Herald, but it's also found, the same quotation is found in the book of Evangelism, uh, page um, 59. And it says the following, Diligent work is now called for. In this crisis, no half-hearted efforts will prove successful. In all our city work, we are to hunt for souls. Wise plans are to be laid in order that such work may be done to the best possible advantage. What kind of plans do we have to lay? Wise plans, right? That's what it says. We must lay wise plans in this work. Now, we want to look at five areas this morning in this second session. We want to look at prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the question. We want to pray. It begins with prayer. 
so that we know how God is directing us in this work. Then we want to look at people, who will I work with and who will I work for? We want to look at place, where will it be held? Talking about the public evangelistic series, where are we going to hold this series of meetings? We want to look at price, what is it going to cost? Well, we've already seen in our first session that on a, spiritually speaking, it will cost us everything, remember? To gain the treasure. But we want to talk here also about very practically, like what is it going to cost? How to, you know, we've got to make a budget for this. And then promotion, how am I going to make it known? So these are the five areas that we want to look at together in this second session. Prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do? People, who will I work with? Who will I work for? Place, where will it be held? Price, what is it going to cost? Promotion, how am I going to make it known? Okay? Now, so let's start with prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you know that that's a question taken from Scripture? Does anyone know which scripture, or, or do you, does anyone know who, who prayed that prayer? Exactly. It was Paul that pray, prayed that prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? Let's go to that experience for a moment. In Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and that was the way that they would uh, describe Christians, the way, capital W, because they followed Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they were called the ones of the way. Whether men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? There we have the question. Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And then he comes into the city, and, it, and we're not going to read the entire story here, but he comes into the city of Damascus, and he's blind. He can't see anything. And so he's waiting there for the next instructions of the Lord. And then the Lord appears unto a, another disciple by the name of Ananias, and the Spirit says to Ananias, go to Paul and, 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 and listen to what the Spirit says, what the Lord said to him, to, to Ananias. Go For he, referring to Paul, is a chosen vessel. A chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Quite fascinating. Paul, which was Saul, which was first the persecutor, becomes Paul, the great apostle that wrote the majority of the New Testament. He became a great public evangelist. But the question that he asked was, the first question that he asked before he becomes a public evangelist was, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? 
He received a vision of Jesus. And you know what? That vision he carried with him his entire life. Uh, When you look at different um, events in the book of Acts, different moments in the book of Acts, you'll find that Paul always had this vision fresh in his memory of how Jesus appeared to him and what Jesus called him to do. You go to Acts chapter 26 and he appears before King Agrippa. And listen to the language here in verse 12 to 19. While thus occupied, as I, and here he's relating that vision that he had uh, that we just read about in Acts chapter 9. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the what? To the heavenly vision. Interesting. Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians. He receives a vision of Jesus. He asks the question, the short prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do? He comes to the city and then Ananias is sent to him. He's healed from his blindness. He receives the call to preach and he starts preaching the message. But then as he goes into the then known world and he goes into the various cities of Asia Minor and he goes into Greece, he never forgets that vision. He never forgets that vision. He never forgets that prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? And so later in the story, much, much later, many years have passed. Now he stands before King Agrippa. He's accused by the Jews. And what does he do? He relates that vision. He relates that vision. My friends, when we engage in public evangelism, it starts with a vision and it starts with a prayer. It starts with a vision that God gives us, gives us of what he wants us to do, which results in a prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Now, what is our vision today? We look in the book of Revelation, and uh, in chapter 14, we find our vision as a Seventh-day Adventist movement right there in the three angels' messages. And you read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, this picture of Christ coming upon the clouds, the second return of Christ. But just prior to that, from verse 6 to 12, we have the three angels' messages. Now, we're not going to go into that tonight, uh, this this morning. Totally confused. We're not going to go into that this morning. But we have a vision here. And that vision we are to carry with us in the work that we do. Just like Paul carried his vision with him in his work. And, with, and when that vision is ever before our eyes, 
Our work is going to be successful. We will be reminded of what God has called us to be. Amen? Now, we not, we, when we pray that prayer, Lord, what, will, what, what do you want me to do? In praying that prayer, we are actually asking God to open doors of opportunities for us to share the gospel, whether it be personally or, as we're thinking more about in this seminar, public evangelism. We're waiting for opportunities. We're looking for opportunities. There are a couple of passages that I want to share here with you, which are prayers of the early church in which they asked God to open doors for them to preach the gospel. Take notice of Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. It says, Continue earnestly in, in what? What does it say? In prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us, that is the apostles that are preaching the message, that God would do what? Open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So Paul is, speaking, Paul is praying for opportunities to preach the gospel. Take notice of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. We seem to see the same thought here, praying for open doors. It says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. You see, when a door is open to proclaim the message, it doesn't mean that it is, there are no challenges. As a matter of fact, there are many instances that you can read about in the book of Acts where they were faced with momental challenges. And yet, they could see the openings of the Lord. And so they went into those, in, uh, through those doors, figuratively speaking, into those places where they would share the gospel of Christ. Here another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. For a great and effective door has opened to me, these are the words of Paul, and there are many adversaries. So an effective door has been opened. There's a great opportunity here to preach the gospel, but with that great opportunity, what else comes according to this verse? Many adversities, right? Many adversaries, rather. So, so many, there's an op opposing power at work. There's an enemy at work. And yet a door of opportunity is there. And we need to learn how to, you know, we, we can ask the very simple question. How do you know if a door is open or it's shut? Or if it's, if it's open or it's locked? There's only one way. You push against it, right? Some people say, how do I know if the Lord has opened the door? Well, gently push and you will find out. Go forward in the fear of the Lord and you will find out whether or not he has opened a way. And you know, if you get some resistance, there, were there, 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 is res there was resistance in the first century, even when, when opportunities were open to preach the gospel, there was resistance. So that prayer becomes so important. Lord, what wilt thou that I should do? What do you want me to do? Paul prayed that prayer. We need to pray that same prayer. Second, people. Who will I work with and who will I work for? 
very important questions. When you are uh, planning an evangelistic series, you need a team in order for that evangelistic series to be successful. I shared in this first session, I shared uh, my personal experience of, our, of my first evangelistic series, which was uh, not successful because I didn't have a team that I was working with. And later on, I've conducted evangelistic series over the years where I've had a church and a team backing up, and it was much more successful. And so public evangelism is not something that we do alone. We gather people together that we work with. Now, um, there's a quote in the Spirit of Prophecy that I would like to share here with you, taken from Evangelism, page 115. Listen to what it says. The formation of small companies as a basis of Christian effort is a plan that has been presented before me by one who, what does it say? Cannot err. That's quite a powerful statement. We should form small companies, small groups, as a basis of Christian effort. When we go out sharing the word, we need to have the support of other brothers and sisters that have received that same vision. When Paul would travel from place to place, he didn't travel alone. He would take a companion with him. Sometimes they would be a group that would travel together. And then he would establish churches. They would work together with those groups of believers in the various cities. There's a work to be done, but it's not a work that we can do in our own, in only, only by ourselves. We need to form those companies teams of workers that can go out sharing the message. Now, the best situation when you conduct an evangelistic series or plan an evangelistic series is to work with, with a church that is on fire, a church that wants to do evangelism. The church is there to support and receive the new believers. So if you go to a specific town where, where you're going to preach an evangelistic series, when you work with a church that is already there, then when you leave that place, the church is there to follow up those contexts that have been gained through the evangelistic series. If you just go to a place and you work all by your own, what's going to happen when you leave? And so the, 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 we must look at who we, who we work with and there's, there's this council to form these small companies. Now, um, ideally speaking, we search for a church that has a passion for evangelism, that wants to work for souls, uh, that, w that are willing to, to do the hard work of, of uh, personally preparing the, the people for an evangelistic series that are willing to put their time and effort and means into making it a success. But sometimes, you know, you don't always find churches like that. Sometimes a church wants to do public evangelism, but, but you look at the uh, spiritual condition of the church and actually, you know, it, the, the church is not really ready for public evangelism. And I must admit that it is quite difficult to evaluate in these instances because you're kind of drawn between two things. In a way, you want to do evangelism with that church and you see that that church, uh, that it would be great for that city, but you also see that the church is not ready. But you know at the same time that, that by doing evangelism, the church itself can get, can, can get into it. You know what I mean? Uh, and sometimes, um, and that, that really takes prayer. That really takes prayer. Because we want to work with 
um, churches that are behind evangelism. At the same time, if they're not yet behind it because they haven't experienced that, it is good for them to get into evangelism and then in the very process, experience the blessings of God and that and then the Holy Spirit can lead them into a deeper revival and reformation themselves. Um, interesting, I can just share a little experience on that. Um, some years ago, I conducted uh, two evangelistic series in two different cities in the same country and, at the, and approximately at the same time. Uh, so um, I was there in this country, um, and um, in a city... There was a church, an Adventist church, and we conducted a, an evangelistic series in that city. And then what we would do is one night I would preach there, and then on another night I would preach in another city with another, uh, uh, another, where there was another church. And so I was like switching between the two, and so these two evangelistic series were going simultaneously. And um, the two churches that I worked with were very, very different from each other. And uh, the one church that I worked was, was very committed very passionate about evangelism, very willing to put everything into it. The members were, were really like understanding that it was not just coming by itself, that it was hard work. And so they would go out and, and share with people and do everything that they could to make this work. The other church that I was working with was not like that. As a matter of fact, they were like, um, yeah, we can do a public evangelistic series. But, but I could just already notice in the preparations for this that there wasn't the same um, spark. There wasn't the same fire there of enthusiasm and uh, yeah they were willing to kind of you know as I said in the first session willing to pay the dollars but not really willing to put themselves into it and um, I was for a long time struggling whether or not I should actually even have that evangelistic series because if the church was not ready was it really you know was it worthwhile doing it um, and this is something that you really need to pray for when you're considering it in those moments. But then the Spirit impressed me to do it for the church itself because they needed the very truths, the very basic truths of Adventism um, because many of them were not even familiar with those things. And so the following happened. Both churches in both cities, they advertised for the meetings. And guess what happened? In the place where they were on fire for evangelism, we started off and we had a good amount of people coming to that meeting, to those meetings. And it was a blessing and people were brought into that church through that evangelistic series. Now at the same time I was preaching in the other place and very, very few people came from outside. But through the preaching, the church itself had a whole new experience of the Word of God and Adventism and, and presented in, in a series of, of, of presentations like that, that they were very inspired after that. And so I just found it quite incredible how, that the God, how God was working here. Uh, in one place, evangelism, uh, both places doing evangelism, public evangelism, in one place the church is involved and people are brought in, and the other per, in the other place the church was not involved, but the series was for the church itself. And so you need to pray and ask God um, how to guide you um, as you as you anticipate um, who you are working with, and then also who you are working for. Um, so ideally, you have a church that is on fire for evangelism that that is um, that wants to go out, that wants to share. Now. Uh, the second question there was, who do we work for? It is important that we consider our audience. Get to know something about the city or town where you will preach. 
What class of people are you generally dealing with? What has been done or what has not been done in that city? Know a little bit of, uh, to find out a little bit about the history of, of what has been done or what has not been done. Do they have a general understanding of the Bible and Christianity or is it an area where there's really very little knowledge of God? You know, I've preached in many places and many countries and towns and, and every time it's different. It's a different experience. It's not like a mechanical experience in public evangelism. Okay, I have these set of presentations and I bring them to this place and then I bring them to this place and then I bring them to this place and I preach in the very same way and I do everything in the same way, the same kind of promotion, the same flyer, the same. And, you know, that's not how public evangelism works. We have to adapt to our audience adapt to the people that we are reaching. Asking the types of questions like, yeah, who am I reaching? Where are they spiritually? What do they know? I mean, it's very different to preach in, in Africa than to preach in Europe. It's very different to preach a public evangelistic series in India than it is to preach in the United States or Australia or New Zealand. Very different. And in order to adapt the message to the people and to adapt our way of approach to the people. We need to know something about those people, right? And so this takes a little bit of, we could call it homework, looking into the city, looking into um, what has been done, what has not been done, what has worked, what has not worked, uh, these type of things in the preparation as we deal with people. Who are we working with? Who are we working for? And generally, if you're working with a church, you need to ask the people in that church what their experience has been in evangelism so far so that you can like, uh, um, kind of do a, a diagnosis of the situation uh, where you are at, where, where you are going to hold this series. Now let us look at place. Where will it be held? Where, will, where are you going to hold uh, an evangelistic series? Now, this might be uh, dependent upon where you have received an invitation uh, to do an evangelistic series or where your church is, but there's, there's more than just that. As you um, engage in public evangelism, uh, you want to look at places that are also unreached, places where there is a need to spread um, the message, to spread the beautiful Adventist uh, faith that we have. As a matter of fact, look at this quote that is taken from the book Evangelism, page 59. Evangelism, page 59. It says, there are those who think it is their duty to preach the truth, but they dare not venture from the, sh from the shore, and they catch no fish. Remember in our first session, we talked about the disciples that went fishing all night, and how much did they catch? Nothing, right? So here, um, in this quote here in the book of Evangelism, it alludes to that story there, but listen to, to what else it says. They will choose to go among the churches over and over the same ground. They report a good time, a pleasant visit, but we look in vain for the souls that are converted to the truth through their instrumentality. These ministers hug the shore too closely. I like that language. They're like, you get this mental picture, right? You're going out in the boat, you're going fishing, but you're just staying at the shore because you don't dare to go far away. This is the safe place. This is the comfortable place. This is a place where I can do the work, but I don't really, you know, this is not really the hard work of evangelism. Listen to what it says. 
They, these ministers hugged the shore too closely, let them launch out into the deep and cast their net where the fish are. There is no lack of work to be done. There could be hundreds employed in the vineyard of the Lord where there is now one. Isn't that incredible? You know, uh, have you, anyone heard of Leonard Ravenhill? Okay, this, um, he was a street evangelist actually in uh, England around the time of the Second World War and shortly after, and, and after. And listen to he, how he puts it. He puts it in, the, in this way. You would be an idiot if you bought a $100 fishing gear only to fish in your bathtub. And yet that's all we are doing in church. We are fishing with the same people every week and people are dying without God. You know, it's like fishing in your bathtub. It's like, you know, hugging the shore. Spirit of Prophecy puts it like that, hugging the shore. We need to go out into places where there are no Adventists, into places that are unreached. Do you know that this was the great, great, um, the great passion of Paul, the evangelist? He always longed to go to places where none others had been. I mean, it's, yes, it's easy to go over the same ground. And of course, um, there are, there's a place for continual evangelism in the same place. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that in our last session this afternoon as we talk about keeping the interest. We're going to look at the cycle of evangelism. There's a cycle. So we're not talking here about just working in one place and then moving always to a new place. There is a time to repeat um, um, uh, to repeat the work or to continue the work rather, that's the better word to use, to continue the work in one place. And yet God is also asking us to go into new fields, into new places, new towns. Now look at what it says in Evangelism page 59. To all people and nations and kindreds and tongues, the truth is to be proclaimed. The time has come for much aggressive work to be done in the cities. And in, all, uh, and in all neglected, unworked fields. Are there many neglected and unworked fields in Europe? I don't know about you, but where I, I don't know where you come from in Europe, but I can tell you that when you look at public evangelism, you can just ask yourself the question in the city where you're from, when is the last time that a public evangelistic campaign has been held in your city? You might not even be able to remember here in Europe. You know, I, I uh, attended a church in, um, when I was living in Holland. My, my parents are Dutch, and so I lived in Holland for, for a number of years. And in the church where I went, I can, I, I'd, never, I'd never even heard of a public evangelistic campaign. If you would talk about, to me about a public evangelist, you would have to explain what that, who that is or what that means to be a public evangelist. See, public evangelism is, um, is not done much in, in, in the continent of Europe. And so when we talk about cities that have been neglected, we, can just, we don't have to look very far. In Europe, there are many cities that have been neglected. There are many unworked fields. Among the people of God, there is to be no colonizing. That means gathering together, sticking together. It says, the word of the Lord to them is, thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. They are to make plants in all places, everywhere the truth for this time is to be proclaimed. 
Another word, spread out. You know, what does Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. Have you ever eaten a meal and, you, and, and, and there's just this clump of salt? Does that taste very good? No, it doesn't. Salt is good. A meal without salt doesn't taste good either. But the salt needs to be spread evenly, right? And so when we think of the truth going into all the world, it needs to be spread evenly. And so we look for places where the message has not yet gone. As a matter of fact, I said earlier, this was the great uh, passion of Paul. If we look in Romans chapter 15, listen to what it says, verse 19 to 21. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to um, Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to him to whom he has not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. You can sense this desire of Paul to go to places that have not yet, not yet been reached. He wanted to carry the gospel forward. Now, when we talk about places, I want to get, I want to get, um, give you a, um, some personal experiences here. You know, um, this picture is actually a picture of one of the very first evangelistic series that we did. It wasn't in the town that I spoke about in the first session. It was actually probably the second evangelistic series that I held here. And this is a picture of a basement room um, in a vegetarian restaurant in the capital of Norway, in Oslo. Now... You know, uh, again, this is the second evangelistic series that I did. This was probably 2004, 2003 or 2004. And, and my wife and I, we were looking for a place to have an evangelistic series. And then we came across this vegetarian restaurant. And they had in their basement uh, a small little room, hall, that would probably fit about 50 or 60 people. And we thought, this is great. Now... Um, it was a start for us, and we didn't really have any money to go any bigger than that. Uh, and so we, we, we actually conducted an evangelistic series uh, in, in, that, in that hall. Now, when we talk about places uh, in evangelistic, for a public evangelistic series, you know, there is the ideal, and then there is what we can actually do where we are. And I want to make this very plain because this is, or, or, this, this is very important. We have the ideal and then we have what we actually can do where we are. Now, for us at that time, this was the budget that we had. This was the opportunities that we had. And so it was great for us to have this public evangelistic series in this little room, the basement of this vegetarian restaurant. And we had people come and uh, not many, but it was a small group of people that came and we shared with them the word and, and, and it, was, it was a great experience for us. And yet, <laughs> and I always, you know, I shared that, that we had this great, this great place and then I suddenly read a quote in the book Evangelism. And I'll share this quote with you right now. Look at what it says. Evangelism, page 421. This is, what, this is what Ellen White says. I am far from being convinced that these small and obscure halls were the best places that could be secured. Or that in this great city of 320,000 inhabitants, and by the way, she's talking here about the city of Copenhagen in Denmark, 
um, that the message should be given in a basement room that will accommodate but 200. And this but half seated so that a large part of, the, part of the congregation have to stand. When God sends our brethren help, they should make earnest effort, even at some expense, to bring the light before the people. This message is to be given to the world. But unless our brethren have broad ideas and plans, they will not see much accomplished. Can you imagine when I read that for the first time? <laughs> I'm like so happy with this basement hall where we have a couple of people that want to hear the word of God. And then I say, and then she says, you know, she's talking about a basement room where only 200 could fit? I mean, we would be rejoicing if we had 200 people here in Europe come to an evangelistic series. Yes or no? Yes. And so, you know, and, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this point here. There is the ideal and then there's what? The reality of where we're at. Now, was it wrong for us to, to, uh, to rent that basement room at that time when we didn't have more money and we were doing our best to do public evangelism there? I don't think it was wrong. But the ideal is that in public evangelism, we should, not, we should have broad, a broad mind and, and, and we should have broad plans, as she says, broad ideas and plans and then we will see also much accomplished when we move forward in the fear of the Lord. Now, um, when you're doing public evangelism and you're starting out as a young evangelist, you, you need to take the best that is, is, is possible, but also within the means and the budget and the opportunities that you have. And so if that's a basement hall, great. If that's a library, great. If that's an auditorium, great. However, the Lord, I, I've preached in so many different settings. I've preached in, in auditoriums. I've preached in open air in India and in Kenya and in places like that. I've preached in basement halls. I've preached in large auditoriums, all these different places. But, you know, as, as I've been more and more involved in evangelism, I've also seen that the preparation is so important. And in that preparation, it also includes that there needs to be a, a budget to work with to secure places that are not somewhere in the back corner of a street, but more locally or, or more, more uh, centrally uh, located so that people can come. It is easier for people to come. Uh, let me say this also, by the way, when you do public evangelism, it is best not to do it in a church building. Now, I have, I have done a public evangelistic series in Seventh-day Adventist churches. The result is far less than when you secure a public place. Why do you think that's so? Very simply, because it's hard for someone that is not familiar at all with Adventism to immediately walk into a church to come to a meeting, right? Even if that meeting is on a weekday, a weekly evening, it is important that we get public halls, and then the great ideal is to get a public hall that is also very centrally located and where people can easily come to. They easily know the way, they can easily find it. Um, listen to what it says here, evangelism, page 75. It says, it requires money to carry the message of warning to the cities. It is sometimes necessary to hire at large expense the most popular halls in order that we may call the people out, then we can give them the Bible evidence of the truth. Now, I want you to take notice that it says it is sometimes necessary. That, mean, that doesn't mean that it's always necessary. 
And that doesn't mean that when you start out as a young evangelist and you're doing your first evangelistic series, of course you're not going to do it in a huge hall. I mean, you, you start small. You start with whatever you have. But then as it grows, we see here the ideal is to get indeed places that are known where people can, can come to hear the message. Um, the last evangelistic series, or one of the last evangelistic series that I did, this was actually not this year, but last year, uh, was in New Zealand in the city of Christchurch. And um, it was actually a series that, um, that David Asherick started and then I uh, took it over when he left and continued that series. And this is the location of that series. Uh, it was the Aurora Center for the Performing Arts. This was a very central place in Christchurch. Um, it was a, a, an auditorium that was well known in town. And so it was a blessing as we shared out the flyers and as we had the, uh, the billboards on the street and also as we personally encountered people and invited them to come, um, this was a place that everyone knew about. You just said the performing, the Aurora Center, and immediately you didn't have to say anything more. You didn't have to describe the street or, you know, they knew that. They knew where to come. Uh, this is actually a picture of inside um, on uh, one of the first nights of that series. Uh, you see the setting is also very well done here. Uh, the PowerPoint is in the middle there, and you have the two. Uh, there was actually a designer in, uh, in New Zealand that painted these, these two eyes, and um, it says above there, what does the future hold? So a very nice setting there uh, for a, a public evangelistic series. Now, your, your first series is not going to be like that. My first series was not like that. And it doesn't, you know, and, and even if we only can preach in a basement hall, we should praise God for that. That's a wonderful experience. And yet we should look ever at ways in which we can enhance the work of God and ways in which we can find places. Maybe it's not a big place. Maybe it's a small place. But find places that are central and well-known so that, when people get that flyer or get that invitation, they're not going to be searching. They know where to go. They know where the meetings are held. You know, in the, uh, in the days of actually Alan White and the pioneers of, the, of Adventism, they would actually bring a tent. And you can read about tent meetings. They would pitch the tent in a, in a central place or in a place where a lot of people would come by. And that's where we'd ha they would have the meetings. They would always search for ways and places to reach as many people as possible. This is actually a picture of a series that I did this year, 2012, in the city of Copenhagen. Interestingly enough, this time we took the council and we didn't go for a basement room, but we went for a, um, a very well-known place. This is actually a, a room that is connected with the uh, stadium, the national stadium. Now, this is, of course, not the national stadium itself, but it is a room that was um, a hall that was connected with that stadium. And so everyone knew that place. And so when we shared out flyers in the city, as we spoke personally with people, as the church would invite friends, um, it wouldn't be hard for them to find this location, this place. And so that's always a blessing when um, such places can be, can be found. I want to share a little testimony here also um, uh, regarding uh, a place when we are looking for a place to hold an evangelistic series. This is a picture um, from a number of years ago, 2006, of also a series that we conducted in, uh, in Copenhagen, Denmark as well. And um, this picture is actually a picture of the opening night. Uh, we had rented a hall that fitted 
I think about between 60 and 70 people. And um, I thought to myself, evangelism, public evangelism in Denmark is very, very difficult. And it is very, very difficult. And so thinking about budget-wise, uh, how difficult it is. You know, you don't want to rent a big hall and then only have a few people. It, you know, like, like this is a far too big hall for the amount of people we're here. You understand that. You know, it feels like kind of almost, I'd rather stand right there because of the cameras I'm standing here. It becomes impersonal, right? So when you're doing public evangelism, you want to think it, the proportion of your advertisement and the amount of people that you expect based on the work of the church has to be in proportion to the size of the hall you have, right? You don't want to have a huge hall with few people, but you neither want to have a small hall where you have too many people. So this is always a matter of prayer and preparation. You can never fully prepare for this, but as much as possible. Now, this story is amazing. We're preaching in, um, we're preparing for this evangelistic series in Copenhagen, and I'm thinking to myself, Copenhagen is just the, you know, the most difficult place to do public evangelism. And so I'm thinking to myself, uh, we're going to put a lot into promotion, we're going to put a lot into make it known, and then we'll rent a not too big hall so that we can at least fill that hall, right? That's how I'm thinking. And that's exactly what we did. And so um, I'm thinking that, well, well, this hall fits 60 or 70 people. With all the promotion we did, if we're, just, if we're able to fill that, that will be a huge blessing. And uh, the first night comes, and to my great surprise, the hall was not only full, it was packed, and people were standing outside. And so there was a little mistake here, you know. We should have gone for a bigger hall. Um, now, what happened is that because of the amount of people, and there were even people standing in the back, the, uh, and this was a hall that was connected with the hotel that we were um, hiring, the manager of the hotel got very upset with the fact that we had too many people there that evening. Now, we had advertised this very widely, this series, but what he did is on that first night after that meeting, he broke the contract with us. And he said, you have, you have broken the contract, he said to us. You have too many people in this hall, and therefore you cannot come tomorrow night. It's over. Now, think about this. Think about how, how we're feeling at this time. We have put out thousands of flyers. We have prepared this for, for, for months, and now we have our first evening. You know, this little hall is packed. And now the next night, we have no hall at all. We cannot come back. What are those people going to do? They're going to come back the second night, and they're going to be sent home. Tragic. Now, what do you think we did? We started praying. We started praying and praying and asking God to give us wisdom what to do in this situation. And... Um, we started the next day, we started calling, and we, and we called libraries, auditoriums, halls, basement, whatever we could think of for a new place to gather. Now, we had two challenges, two main challenges. Challenge number one, finding a place on the same day. Now, that's a huge challenge in the city of Copenhagen. I mean, you, we're calling these, these uh, auditoriums, these libraries, and asking, can we, can we rent a hall? And then they're asking, well, when do you need it? Tonight? Now, what do you think they answer? It's impossible. You need to rent this for weeks or months in advance. 
So that was the first great challenge to find a place for the very same evening and then the evening after that and then the next week and the exact dates that we needed. Second great challenge was the people were not going to come to that new locality just like that. They would come to the first locality, right? And so the second challenge is that we would have to organize logistically how to get the people from the first place to the new place. So we would have to organize on the same day some buses or whatever to get the people from the first place to the second place. And Copenhagen is a large city, more than a million people. And so this was a huge challenge. And we are calling and calling and calling, phone call after phone call after phone call. And every time it's like, you know, uh, when do you need the hall? Oh, we need it tonight. Impossible. Sometimes they would say, okay, yes, you can have the hall tonight. But then we would ask, well, we also need it next week, these and these and these dates. That would not be possible. And so just nothing was opening up. And then sometimes we would ask, well, where is it? And they would say, oh, it's here. And we would look on the map. Oh, that's far. That's totally on the other side of the city. That's not going to work. But after a while, we even started giving up on asking where it was so we just started asking uh, as long as it's in Copenhagen somewhere it doesn't matter where it is we just need to find a place and we'll organize uh, where it is that that's the next question that comes afterwards but just find a place and we were not finding a place an hour after hour after hour is going by and we're getting closer and closer to seven o'clock in the evening when the meeting is going to start and then My wife, Sylvia, she calls a number of a place that we did not know where it was. We knew it was in Copenhagen, of a hall. And the guy on the other side says, well, when do you need it? And she says, we need it tonight. And he says, okay, you, you know, this is, this is um, interesting. Uh, we just had a, I think it was actually, if I remember correctly, a band was going to perform there in that hall that evening, but they had canceled. And so he said, okay, you can, you, can, you can use the hall tonight. And then she says, well, we also need it tomorrow, and we also need it this and this and this date next week. And guess what? Those were the exact dates that were empty. There were a couple of cancellations, and these were the exact times that we could be in that hall. Now, that in itself was a miracle. And we thought, okay, location One thing. But then the question is, well, how big is the hole and where is it, right? Because we had a problem because 70 people, this hole was too small. So we asked, how big is the hole? The hole fit 100 people. And so we had a bigger hole with the dates that we needed it. And now the last question, where is it? And guess where it was? It was on the other side of the street. Seriously, it was on the other side of the street. Amen. Isn't God good? I mean, our faith was limited, and God opens up a way for many more people to be exposed to the truth of God's word. And so they would come that evening, and we would say, well, because of um, some problems, we are moving to a new hall. And so we'd point to the opposite direction of the street. That's where we are tonight. And God filled that hall. And so, you know, we, we need to trust in God when it comes to this work of public evangelism. This is a work that we're not engaged in on our own. We need to trust God and God will direct our path. He will open opportunities and places for his message to be proclaimed. This is actually a picture of the, of the place where we had that evangelistic series. 
Now, let's go to, we have a couple of minutes left here. Let's go to price. What is it going to cost? I'm not going to use a lot of time on this, but um, it is important to look at the budget that you have as you do public evangelism. Um, you need to sit down, like the, like, the, like the illustration of Jesus, you need to sit down and count the cost when you build the tower. You need to consider financially what you can do. Now, if you don't have a budget... You know, start on the street corner preaching. I mean, you don't need a lot of money for public evangelism. Evangelism does not, well, let me put it this way. Evangelism doesn't have to be expensive. Public evangelism can be very cheap. And yet it is all what we make it, right? And, but if you, we do have a large budget, we're also able to go for, for um, places where we know that people are familiar with and can come to. And... Um, just a quick experience here as well uh, with the work in, uh, in Copenhagen. We were advertising um, this year, the meetings that we had this year, on buses. And you see here on the back of the bus um, the uh, website of the series that we were, we were doing there. And in a, in a miraculous way, God opened up that we could advertise on these buses um, for a much, much cheaper price than what it actually cost. We had 80% discount 80% discount on advertising on those buses. So, because normally that is extremely expensive. And they also left the advertisement on the buses for a complete extra week. So that was just great. And so when you are considering um, your, your budget, uh, consider as to, well, what are some things that you need to take in consideration? Well, these are some of the things you need to take into consideration. Um, promotion, like how much money are you going to spend on promoting it, whether through flyers or through radio, newspaper. These are different ways that you can promote it. Now, these are sometimes, um, um, dependent on which country you're from, can be quite expensive. Uh, so you will need some money for that. Then public venue, how much money are you going to spend on the public venue? Sometimes, sometimes you can actually get a library hall for relatively um, uh, cheap. Uh, I've even spoken in library halls that we had for free that we could freely use. Um, other places are more, more expensive, so, but you need to consider that in your budget. Uh, books and literature is an important part of public evangelism. How much money are you gonna spend on that? Uh, sound and video equipment. And then uh, a Bible worker, of course, very important with the follow-up work. So these are a couple of things that you need to include in your budget when you are preparing and planning for an evangelistic series. Now, I would personally recommend that you don't charge yourself for your services. Um, I've been a public evangelist um, for, yeah, in, I could say full-time for about seven years now, uh, traveling around the world uh, doing public evangelistic series. I've never, ever charged anything for my services. Now, people will, will, will give uh, and, and to, to support me. Um, they will pay for my, often they will pay for my expenses for traveling, sometimes not, but usually they will. But I've never taken wages for what I'm doing. You know, um, when you look at things to include in your budget, um, try to do it in such a way that, that you are offering yourself, because when you make a sacrifice, that will also inspire others to make a sacrifice, to make it happen. And so um, you need money for promotion. You need money for a public venue, for books and literature, for sound equipment. And also for, I'm talking when I say Bible worker, more a permanent Bible worker over a longer period. 
But if you, do, if you give your services for free, then God will take care of you. And his spirit, uh, God's spirit will also impress individuals to support your needs. And uh, so I would just recommend that, that as you go into public evangelism, if you do a series, offer your services. Like Paul, you know, he was a tent maker. He would earn his own money. He would not burden the church. And the message grew and, and moved forward. Uh, finally, as we need to close here, uh, promotion. How am I going to make it known? How are you going to make it known, this series? Well, look at this. I find this very encouraging. Evangelism, page 40, it says... In the cities of today where there is so much to attract and please, the people can be interested by no ordinary efforts. Ministers of God's appointment will find it necessary to put forth, what does it say? Extraordinary efforts in order to arrest the attention of the multitudes. So when we're talking about public evangelism, it takes extraordinary efforts. Now, we need to do whatever we can to make it known. So be creative. You know, make attractive flyers. You know, uh, make r radio uh, ads, TV ads, uh, internet, whatever is within a budget and within the possibilities, but make it known in such a way that it will catch the attention of many. But ultimately, ultimately, the most important is personal invitations. That is the most important when it comes to public evangelism. You need a church that is on fire that can share with their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers, personally inviting people. That I've seen over the years that that is the greatest result in public evangelism, the personal invitations of the team that you're working with, the church that you're working with. So yes, radio ads, yes, uh, internet, yes, all these flyers, all these different ways, but without personal invitations, it will not avail too much. So that's an encouragement. When you're dealing with promotion, you need to encourage the church that you're working with that they will make it known to the sphere of influence that they are in. And of course, prayer. As we talked about, we started with that in the very first point, prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the entire series needs to be carried on the wings of prayer. Prayer is ex extremely important um, in the entire process of public evangelism. I'm going to close with this one experience. Uh, we did a public evangelistic series, and a man came to the meetings, and at the end of the meetings, he came up to me and he said, I want you to know how I heard about these meetings. He said, I was on my way back home from work, and I get onto the tram, and as I'm traveling in the tram, I realize that I'm on the wrong tram. And he said, it never happened to me, because I always know the way. I always know which tram I need to take. But I find myself on the wrong tram. And then he said that he looked down, and when he looked down, he saw a flyer on the ground. And he, had some, and he never really picked up things that were on the ground, but there was a voice speaking to him, an impression of the Holy Spirit, pick up that flyer, pick up that piece of paper. He picks it up, and it was an invitation to the evangelistic series that we had. He came to that series, and he was greatly blessed. Think about the fact that God put him on the wrong tram and made him pick up a flyer that someone else had thrown away for him to come to those evangelistic series. My friends, when doing public evangelism, we need prayer, and then the Holy Spirit will cooperate with us. Amen?
He will cooperate in us in leading people into our sphere of influence so that we can present to them the greatest treasure, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us this morning in our sessions. Thank you for inspiring us, instructing us. Lord, we want to make you the greatest treasure of our life. We want to follow you wherever you go. We want to put you on display for others. And we want to ask you for wisdom, for wisdom, Lord, as we engage in evangelism. And so we thank you for the things we could discover from your word, from the pen of inspiration. Help us to be able to put these things in action as we go back to our cities and places where we live. And we thank you for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.